to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, we're in verse, verses 12 through 22 this morning. I finished planning out this series on Isaiah. So 53 sermons total. This is number 7. That's 13% of the way there. That might encourage you. It might not. But by the end of it, all our Bibles will open automatically to Isaiah. And one of the things we want to convey to you in this sermon series is really that we would be adept at understanding and interpreting the prophetic literature of the Scripture, which is so important in pointing us to the kind of life God calls us to and also the salvation that we have in Christ. So Isaiah 2 Uh, This morning, I'll read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Hear what God is against and how in His grace He calls us and humbles us. So beginning in verse 12, hear God's word. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Let's pray together. O Lord, we ask, indeed, humble us. Speak to us through your word and by your spirit that our lives would reflect something of the great love you have for sinners, and that our lives would reflect the power of the gospel to change hearts. We pray, be at work as you promised, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. One reason I love fall, maybe you too, football. And so I heard a story told about two football coaches having a conversation. It was the head coach of a football team and the recruiting coach. And they're having a conversation talking about what kinds of players the head coach wants on the team. So the head coach was instructing the recruiting coach, telling him what kinds of players to be on the lookout for to get on the team and recruit on the team. And the head coach began, he said, you know, when we're running that tackling drill uh, in practice, I don't want the guy who gets knocked down and then he figures out football isn't for him and he leaves the team. I don't 
the head coach was telling the recruiting coach, I don't want that kind of guy. I don't want the one who gets knocked down and quits. And the recruiting coach interrupted the head coach and said, oh, 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 I know. I know what kind of player you're looking for. You're looking for the player who, when we're running that tackling drill, and he gets knocked down, he gets back up, and he gets in there again, and he gets knocked down, but he's determined, and he gets back in and really tries his hardest. He's determined. He gets knocked down again, and then he gets back up, and the head coach interrupted him and said, no, we're not looking for that guy either. We don't want the guy who gets knocked down and quits, and we don't want the guy who gets knocked down and keeps getting in there and keeps getting knocked down. We want the guy who's doing the knocking down. That's who we want on our team, the guy doing the knocking down. And when you look at Isaiah, you see God portrayed here in chapter 2 as the one who is doing the knocking down. God is able to do this. And so often the journey of having an accurate biblical theology is about taking our thoughts and aligning those to Scripture. Part of good theology has to be repenting of our own thoughts of God and accepting what the Bible says is true about God. You see, we might talk about how in Isaiah 63, verse 3, God is pictured as one who is treading out a wine press and the grapes are his enemies and their blood is splattering onto his robe. Oh, time out. Someone might, might tell me, and I love when I hear this because I get to talk about who God really is. Have you ever heard somebody say, my God would never do that? That's an open invitation Isaiah 63.3 reads, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. That's the God of the Bible. And so when someone says, my God would never do that, it's an invitation to invite them to meet the God of the Scripture. Who does that? Who does defeat all his enemies and trample them as one who trods out a winepress? And here in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, we meet a God who comes against all that we put confidence in. Anything we put confidence in, any idol God moves against it and especially moves against our pride and he moves against having a high regard for people. And so we need to know this God and how Isaiah portrays God as coming against because I'll show you that God comes against as a work of his grace. It's part of his redemptive plan to come against the things that are listed here in this passage. He comes against in his redemptive power that we might only worship and follow him. So look at this passage with me, and there's an outline if you want to follow along in your bulletin. There's an outline there for you. 
But we get a summary statement in verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Well, what's going to be brought low? We get the answer to that in verses 13 through 16. There's a list there given to us. So verse 12 is a summary statement for the Lord of hosts. And I'll give you a tip here in biblical interpretation where you see the word for, that starts a new section. So we see it's starting a new thought here. We see it as well in chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord of hosts has a day. The Lord of hosts is Isaiah's favorite title uh, for God. There's several titles that Isaiah uses for God. We've already seen the Holy One of Israel. That's in chapter 1, verse 4. 48 times Isaiah refers to God as the Lord of hosts. What does this mean? This is as if God is a general and he's commanding the armies and he's commanding them to move according to his will, according to his way, to protect his followers and to convict and judge the wicked. So the Lord of hosts has a day, we're told in chapter 2, verse 12, a day. Now, what's meant here by the day is, of course, a final day of judgment. The day is shorthand for the last day, when all this judgment will become evident and God will be displayed in all his greatness to all people. But as well, a day is coming for Israel, and this is part of Isaiah's message, a day which points to the final day. And what happens in the near day of judgment, that's when Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, carts off Israel into exile. That day of judgment that is coming for Israel's sin mirrors and points to the future day of judgment. So Isaiah really has both in mind here, and it helps us understand things better in terms of when a day is mentioned, it is the last day, but it's a day that's prefigured and pointed to in the near day of judgment for Israel. So we read back to verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lifted up, and it shall be brought low. God is powerful enough to bring it low. Well, what's he going to bring low? What is he coming against? Here's the list. Verse 13, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. And you might think about the cypress trees by the Guadalupe River or the cypress trees by the Cibolo Creek. They're large, they're close to a source of water, and so they grow very large and majestic. The flag for Lebanon has a cedar tree on it. And really, this is anything that a country would put confidence in. Any resource or anything a country would, be, would put confidence in apart from God. Confidence to bring about a certain result. Confidence to sustain them. Any resource or anything a country looks to other than God, God's going to come against it. So you might think in the United States of America, what do we typically put confidence in? Innovation entrepreneurship. We put confidence in material success. We may even put confidence in our weaponry, in the technology associated with it. God comes against those things. 
He comes against the Oaks of Bashan here in verse 13. Perhaps uh, these are the sacred oaks, places of worship in the ancient world. Verse 14, he's against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills. That takes us back to chapter 2, verse 2. We read there, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. The mountain here, emblematic of God's kingdom, his will, and his way and how that's going to be above everything. There is no high place above God. Verse 15, against every high tower and against every fortified wall. Remember Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. God moved against that in the pride of man. And then he's against every fortified wall. Whatever we would construct to protect ourselves... God is able to break through those defenses. He is powerful enough to do that. Verse 15, uh, excuse me, verse 16, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful crafts. So evidently Tarshish, known for their shipbuilding. Here God is coming against the ability to travel, how that might cause us to be prideful because we can go about our earth journeying, it's against commerce, against business that might set itself up against God, where we would put our confidence in those things. And the point that's being made here in Isaiah 2, verses 12 through 16, the point that's being made is whatever we would put confidence in, whatever we would put our hope in, God is coming against that, that we would only hope in him. Just as a surgeon lovingly excises a tumor, so God must perform spiritual surgery on our life, that we would only hope in him, only trust in him. And part of his redemptive work is sometimes, by his grace, because of his mercy, to shatter our dreams. That in the wreckage of our dreams, we might find Christ anew. That in the wreckage of our dreams, we might see and be humbled to worship and follow only, only God. So God comes against whatever we would put confidence in. And he comes against, verse 17, our pride as well. Look in verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You see, God is so great, so magnificent, so above everything else, He'll be the only one who is exalted. He is a jealous God, meaning that when we misplace our love towards other things, He will redirect that love. And sometimes He redirects that love through force. Is God able to do that? Absolutely. Don't say my God would not do that. He is able to come against the haughtiness of man, the lofty pride of men, so that the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. We talked last week more about pride. This is, verse 17, is a repetition 
of some of verse 11. Pride is confidence in yourself. Pride is confidence in your own ability. Pride is self-worship and self-confidence brought together, and God comes against it, but it is part of his redemptive work that we would not be confident in ourselves, but only be confident in him. Now, I want to tell you about, in our, I was watching football the other day, and I saw something which reminded me that we tend to take pride in ourselves. And this particular individual had on a Tampa Strong shirt. And it reminded me, and you got to hear me out here, because I don't want us just saying what's wrong with something. I want us lovingly interacting with this situation. So Tampa Strong. Now, does Tampa need strength in the face of Hurricane Ian? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, this tendency to talk about a location... I'm not talking about something you haven't seen, right? To talk about a location and strong, we tend to do that in the face of a natural disaster or in the face of a man-made disaster, in the face of sin. This originally can be traced to 2013, the Boston Marathon bombing that happened. And do you remember seeing perhaps T-shirts or signs that said Boston strong and this community had been terrorized by the sin of two brothers and so it was a good response for sure in the face of this tragedy that people are not just going to fold we're going to be resilient and we're going to move forward and we're going to be strong and I hear that message and it's absolutely one that is necessary however however for the Christian, our strength comes from Christ. When we say a locality strong, say Texas strong, or something like that, it's actually a humanistic response. It's a response that is based on my own inner resources. And you see, the problem with this is true lasting, eternal strength does not come from within us. But for a Christian, strength is derived from another outside of us. He who went to the cross, he who reconciled us to God, he who brought us together with God such that we have peace with him, that's where true strength comes from. The idea of a locality strong is appointing within ourselves and our own resources to generate strength. And the problem with that is, in the face of these tragedies, sins against, or natural disasters, sometimes we just don't have enough strength. And we need greater strength by looking outside of ourselves. You see, it was Frederick Nietzsche, the German philosopher who Kelly Clarkson so aptly uh, quoted, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That is not a Christian idea. And this idea that in the face of natural disasters or tragedies or people sinning against us, 
that we will be strong. That is not the way, the Christian way of resilience. And so I mentioned, I don't want us just judging or, or being critical of this movement. I want us understanding when you see something like that, that instead of that response, we should pray, Lord, have mercy. In the face of demonstrable power for destruction, the right response is not, I will be strong within myself in the face of this. No, the right response is, Lord, have mercy. It's a response of prayer. It's a response that we are acknowledging that there is someone greater than us and that God himself organizes all the events of this world. He even is able, he is this strong, to use tragedy and sin to shape the hearts and souls of his people in the project of sanctification, of us growing in our discipleship, that our character might look more and more like Christ. So it's not Texas strong, it's Lord have mercy. It's looking outside of ourselves for true strength. That is the pathway of resilience. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 point this out to us in bold relief. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's where real strength and resiliency comes from. Lord, have mercy. The acknowledgement that God is greater than us and the fact that he has had mercy on us in Christ. So, so far what I've shown you is God is the one who's doing the knocking down. He knocks down for his redemptive purposes and by his grace that we would not have this misplaced confidence in other things, that we would not be prideful. He comes against as well our idolatry. This is in verses 18 through 19. Now you might think for a moment, finally, I'm safe idolatry. But you know, idols are not just little statues or figurines, but in point of fact, idolatry is a sin we're all guilty of. What is idolatry except something that takes away worship from God? Something that causes us to be distracted or taken away from worship what is idolatry except something that comes between God and us? What is idolatry except that which diminishes our faithful service and worship to God? If we define idolatry that way, we are all guilty. We're guilty of idolatry when we make something good, ultimate, 
That's the tricky part. Something good, ultimate. And we're also guilty of idolatry when we make something important ultimate as well. And the primary, well, look in verse 18. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And what's happening here, Isaiah, by God's grace, is looking into the future. He's seeing what will happen. All the idols will pass away. And then he's coming into our present as a work of God's grace to tell us this. Those things you think are so important. And the idols of this age, they're going to pass away someday. Verse 19, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. God will be just and terrifying because he is that great and mighty, the only one worthy to follow and to worship. And so the idols shall utterly pass away. What about in our own community here in Bernie, Texas? What are our idols? I think four primary idols, family, children, success, and money. These are the things which primarily distract people or take away their worship and dedication of God. Family, children, success, and money. And you can see all of it come together by watching children's sports and listening to what you hear coming from the stands, what you hear from the parents of the children participating in these sports. Be convicted if that's you. But by listening and hearing the pressure parents are putting on children, we are seeing that the parents worship family, children, money, and success. Now, if your kid gets a professional sports contract, I'll be there to celebrate I'll also be there to remind your kid of idolatry, but I'll be there to help them, you know, make that check payable to Trinity Presbyterian <laughs> Church. But the pressure we put on children to succeed, it's a pressure to get good grades. It's a pressure to go to a good college, and then you get a good job. It's that kind of pressure that we put on children. Are those things important? Yeah. It's important to steward the gifts that God has given us, to learn how to work hard, and to uh, certainly use our gifts and abilities to glorify God. That is true. But the pushing that parents do, as represented from coaching from the stands, or when a referee or umpire gets in the way of your child's success and the reaction that parents have in our community here in Bernie, Texas shows us that family, children, success, and money are being worshipped. Now, those are good things. That's where idolatry comes in. These, there's nothing in and of themselves wrong with those things, but they become too important to us. And so we push and we put pressure on children. 
to succeed in these ways. And as parents, it's so much more important. You know what's more important than success? That your child is a Christ follower. And we need to live that out and embody that as we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them what is truly important. Uh, I love the fact that driving around Bernie, I haven't seen it in a while, and if it's you, I want to shake your hand. Someone drives around in this nice Porsche in, in Bernie, beautiful black Porsche, and the license plate is C student. C student, like the letter C. C's do get degrees, by the way. But the point is not to be lazy, but to understand what your priorities are and who you're answerable to. You know, if you're a parent who's put so much pressure on your kid, your kid's anxious, your kid's depressed, and they're struggling with that, it's time to remind them of who is the most important person to please and to glorify. So God moves against our idols. We're told these things will utterly pass away. Why are we so vehement about worshiping them then? If they will pass away, it makes no sense. So God moves against what we put confidence in. He moves against our pride. He moves against our idols. He does these things again. This is evidence of his mercy and love that the worship rightly due to him would not leak out towards other things. And he moves against a high regard of man. This is in verses 20 through 22. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. In other words, what they treasured the most, they're going to throw it away. Those things which they made, verse 20, for themselves to worship. Who's going to get them? The moles and the bats. How about that? The moles and the bats. They're going to throw them away because they will be so fast. Running away, verse 21, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. What's the conclusion here? Look in verse 22. Stop regarding man. You want to regard someone? Regard God alone. Can you imagine for a moment the regard that a world leader is given like Vladimir Putin, the regard that is giving, given him. Oh, maybe it's because of the power of what he can do and the destructive force that he has. Stop regarding man. His power is nothing compared to God's power. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. What does that mean? That speaks to the finite nature of life, that it's a smoke, a vapor that goes up and then disappears. For of what account is he? Do you see the contrast here between regarding man and regarding the one, the terror of the Lord, the splendor of his majesty, he who can terrify the earth? That's the one. To regard. You know, in November, with the 
midterm elections. And then again, I'm already preparing us for 2024, the presidential election. What's my advice for you? Stop regarding man. If you think the real power in this world lives in a White House, you are sorely mistaken. The real power is God Almighty. And you know, He works through the power of His people when they get on their knees and they pray. That's where the power is. Stop regarding man. And let us together as God's people regard God and have fear of Him and respect and reverence for Him as we give up our idols, as we give up on ourselves and our pride, and we give up everything we put confidence in. Let us rest in God alone, through Christ alone, as we see that He is able to knock anyone and anything down. And even if you find yourself in the midst of shattered dreams, if you find yourself in the midst of tragedy, be it human-made or natural disaster, let us together remember, even in the midst of those situations, that God lovingly puts us there, that we might only trust in Him, that we might only depend on Him, that even in this bad situation, because we live in a fallen world, and people sin, and we are sinners, that even in the midst of those kinds of situations, that God loves us, and He wants to shape us and change us all for our good and for His glory. Let's pray together. Lord, how thankful we are indeed that You love us enough not to let us go, that You pursue us, that You knock us down from our heights. And when we are prideful and idolatrous, you call us back to you. How we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, have mercy on us, we sinners. And thank you for the mercy that you've shown us in Christ. And may we together regard only you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.